0: before we get in to what the contents of the passage are let me just uh, introduce us by saying this it is possible to come to church regularly to have been baptized to say regular prayers to tick christian on the census to read your bible and to feel confident and secure in your life with god not fearing him it is possible it is possible for you to be doing and feeling all of this and to be completely wrong So, well, we spoke briefly last week about the political state of affairs in Israel and Judah at the time of Amos's prophetic ministry. Uh, and if you weren't here for that, I'll just direct you to the beginning of last week's sermon if you want to catch up on the, the setting. I won't repeat all of that uh, for everybody. Uh, but what we didn't speak much about was the mindset in Israel at that time and so that's what we'll get a clearer um, vision of just now um, which will help us to understand what amos is doing with this book with this prophecy so the, we're, we're going to just take a minute to understand the mindset in israel there are three things that israel feel firstly uh, israel well at least in some classes is fairly prosperous and feels secure. They've had a fairly stable government for a while, uh, and for some, this has meant good business. We can see this in chapter 4, verse 1, if you just glance your eye down there, where it says, uh, and we'll look at that in more detail next week, uh, but it says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Now, just note here that Paul, when, when uh, Amos calls these women cows, uh, he's not in uh, in, a, in and of itself uh, making a derogatory statement about them. Uh, uh, compare, for example, uh, Solomon in his Song of All Songs, uh, which is another part of the Bible, when he speaks of his coming bride as having hair like flocks of goats uh, and teeth like freshly shorn sheep, right? He's not... Um, He's not criticizing her but, uh, that's a way of describing her uh, but in a positive way so the phrase to call them cows of Bashan is not intrinsically derogatory but the thing about cows in Bashan is that they were proper good cows that's what cows of Bashan were they were well-fed healthy strong So to call them cows of Bashan is to say that they are very well supplied. They have no lack. Life is full and good. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria. That's one clue to the situation in Israel. We see the same thing in chapter 6, verse 1, which is if you just turn down uh, a little bit further, you'll see there. Where Amos says, right at the beginning of this next section, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You see that? Complacent and feel secure. He goes on a little bit further in verse 4. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David, and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. You get—it's quite a—it's not too hard to enter that world and imagine what the people are like. He says, "But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph." So the first thing about the attitude of Israel at this time is that they are secure and prosperous. In their attitude. Secondly, Israel feels that the Lord is on their side. In chapter 5, verse 14, if you just glance a little bit uh, back a little bit, Amos says, Seek good, not evil. So this is chapter 5, verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Look what he says there. then. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. You see that? Just as you say he is. They think the Lord is on their side. And a few verses later, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. In other words, he's saying to them, why do you long for the day? For because, uh, because for you, it's not going to be a good day. But you can see by virtue of the fact that they long for that day that they think that the Lord is on their side so Israel or at least a particular class in Israel are comfortable secure prosperous and they think the Lord is on their side okay third and final thing is that Israel is outwardly religious uh, we can see this that this is so, uh, in the verses that we've uh, that I've just mentioned, uh, a little bit further down in verse twenty-one, <clears throat> so chapter five, verse twenty-one, there he says, "I hate, I despise." This is the Lord talking to Israel. Your religious festivals, your assemblies, are a stench to me. he says? In verse 22 even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings I will not accept them look at that though you bring choice fellowship offerings I will have no regard for them away with the noise of your songs I will not listen to the music of your harps they offer sacrifices looks like they do it quite a lot Uh, they sing songs to the Lord they are religious they're religious people plenty of external religious activity so this is the uh corporate attitude in israel at this time israel feels prosperous and secure they believe that the lord is on their side and they are externally religious even passionately so that's the context into which amos is writing and they're clues that we can see simply from amos And what this creates in Israel is a kind of confidence among the people that makes it very difficult for a prophet like Amos to get his message of imminent destruction at the hand of the Lord across to this group of people. I'll say that again. It makes it very difficult for a prophet like Amos, who carries a message of imminent destruction at the hand of the Lord, to get through to this group of people because from one perspective at least things look kind of good but this confidence of Israel's is faulty for at least two reasons the first reason is because as i said last week it's a religion made not according to god's prescribed way but a man-made religion So for example the worship at Bethel, which was a center of worship in Israel, in the northern kingdom, uh, was instituted by a man, Jeroboam, one of the kings, but it was instituted from his own imagination. And that's a point that the author of One Kings wants to stress when he describes the creation of that worship site of Bethel. He says, Jeroboam appointed priests of his own choosing. He appoints a festival of his own choosing. Uh, and He centers this worship around two golden calves. Um, which, as I mentioned last week, is a strong echo of Israel's devastating error at Mount Sinai. The point is, the worship of Bethel is very religious, but it's a pseudo-system that mirrors and distort, uh, but distorts true worship and has its origin in the heart of man. That's the first key fault with Israel's uh, worship, but it's not the one that Amos wants to stress in this book. The second reason, he brings it up but it's not his major note, and the second reason why their uh, confidence is faulty is because although they are passionate in their religion as it is directed toward God, that uh, vertical passion doesn't mirror itself in its direction toward people. That's critical. And in God's economy, these two always go together. So closely are they woven together that the way that we treat others at the horizontal level can function as one kind of litmus test of our true relationship with the Lord. And that's Amos's major concern. Different prophets will stress different sins, Amos stresses greed and prosperity that originates and is sustained by the expense of others. Your profit at another's expense. That's horizontal injustice. And those two faults are fatal flaws for Israel. In fact, it's so serious that those two faults undermine all the other good things that Israel thinks it has going for it. The passion in its worship is irrelevant because it's not how God wants to be worshipped. It doesn't matter how much water you pump out of the spring, if the water's poisoned, it's useless. And such is the case with Israel's worship. And it doesn't matter how devoted you think you are to God, If this devotion doesn't mirror itself in love for neighbor you've simply deceived yourself into thinking that you love God one without the other is useless okay so that's the setting here's the conclusion of the setting this is a people in Israel at this time with a sense of assurance They feel confident and prosperous. But critically, it's an unwarranted assurance because of those two fatal flaws. And Amos's aim in coming into that situation in this book is to shock this people into listening and ultimately into repentance. Amos preaches the way he does and we, felt, and we feel hard punches coming from Amos because he needs to get through to dull ears. And the reason he needs to get through to them is because although they feel secure, the reality is that they are in imminent, comprehensive, and inescapable danger. Amos is loving them. Okay. We split the rest of our time into two halves. Each half will consist of three points. Uh, the first part will look at how Amos in this chapter contributes to that major aim in the book. And the second part we'll think about how this message applies to us today. So a bit of work on Amos now. Uh, in this passage. Uh, that was the social context. Okay, part one, getting through to the chosen people. Okay, so what Amos is doing in chapter three at the beginning uh, is a continuation of what began in chapter two, verse six. So we saw last week that Amos uh, pronounces seven messages of judgment on nations that are all around Israel. Uh, and seven being the number of completions And then, surprisingly, he adds an eighth message of judgment on Israel itself. And it's a surprise. We've done the seven. What's the eighth doing? But that is exactly the point. And it's a shock to Israel. And that's exactly what he wanted to do. You you also, he says, are being called to account because you've been found wanting. Uh, Sorry, and you've been found wanting. And 3 verse 2 or 1-2, to uh, continues and expands on this same idea. This is what he says, uh, chapter 3, verse 1-2. to Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sin. Notice the double emphasis on being the people of the Lord. He says there, Brought up out of Egypt, that's a reminder that they're the people of the Lord. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Double whammy, you guys are the people of the Lord. But then the shock is clarified. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Notice that it's not therefore, I will excuse you for all of your sins from getting an exemption from the Lord's court, Israel's closeness to the Lord meant that it needed to be punished. Now, just a note here, he's not saying that the ground for Israel's punishment is simply that the Lord had chosen it. That would be silly. That would be like saying, I chose you specifically so that I could punish you. Right? That doesn't make sense. We need to supply something between the two clauses. Something like, uh, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, and then insert something like, but you have not responded as you ought, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. There's an implied lack of godly behaviour in there. It's a way of saying, you are the only ones of all the people of the earth that I've brought into a close relationship with me, and therefore you should have known better than to walk in your sins. Therefore, because you've not obeyed, despite this privilege, even with this privilege, I will punish you. He's getting through to the chosen people. Can you see how this is hard work? They're the chosen people. Getting through to them is not easy, to think that they too might be held to account. So now, Amos is going to move in. first to show that the punishment uh, is imminent, then he will show that the punishment has a reason, and finally he'll show that the punishment is comprehensive and inescapable so that's what he does now for the rest of the chapter the first one the punishment is imminent he does this by way of a series of illustrations this is verses 3 to 8 now that highlight the way certain evidences demand certain conclusions and that certain things don't happen unless other certain things happen first so let's read it together he says do to walk together unless they have agreed to do so
1: does a lion roar in the
0: thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants the prophets the lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? So the lion doesn't roar unless it's caught some prey, and the trap doesn't spring up from the ground unless it has a bird, and disaster doesn't happen unless the Lord has done it. And the point being, but then he says, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets, And Amos is saying, Here I am, as the prophet. And the point being, the Lord has revealed his plan to the prophets, and his message is a roar. So you need to take note of this warning, because a roar happens when the lion has taken the prey. The reality is, the Lord is the lion, and the lion has roared. You are the prey. My voice is the lion roaring. He's presenting it in such a way that it's so close and it's so urgent. You're supposed to feel the lion has left the thicket. And he's either pounced on you already or he's so close he's got his claws out. At Amos's first point, there, verses three to eight, <clears throat> punishment is imminent. I am trying to get through to you, Israel. The lion has roared. Verse eight: Who will not fear? You need to move now. Secondly, the punishment has a reason. Punishment is just. So Amos then moves in verses 9 to 10 to show why, give an explanation as to why this punishment is so close. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. That's uh, that's the Philistines and the Egyptians. And he says, assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria. That means come around and gather about and look inside Samaria. Look inside London, as it were. Check it out and see the great unrest within her, and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. God is not unjust. The punishment has a reason. And it shouldn't be a surprise because what Amos is saying here is completely in line with the terms of the covenant. Deuteronomy says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. But then he says, just a few verses later, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. That was the terms of the covenant. In fact, it's precisely because God is just that the punishment is coming. And this is the kind of justice that we all functionally live by when we say so-and-so deserved it, or when we say so-and-so didn't deserve it, we're saying justice was or wasn't met and is usually conditional on behaviour. We all love justice, and rightly so. challenge is when we find that we are perpetrators, then we love mercy, and necessarily so. Despite claims to religious zeal and plenty of religious activity Samaria is full of violence, oppression, and injustice. As a side note, it's kind of amazing how self deceived we can be as people. That Amos has to actually preach to get this through. Pre- but I don't want to focus on Israel's sins tonight because there's plenty of time in the book and he goes, uh, he weaves this. Uh, the ground and the reason, the sins of Israel, through the book as he goes. For now, we'll simply note that this is one example where where Amos brings out evidence against Israel to show that the threat of destruction is not unwarranted. He puts their behaviour before them, as it were. That's what he's doing. Thirdly, and finally, uh, as we look at Amos, before moving to how this might apply to us, the punishment is comprehensive and inescapable. So remember, Amos is trying to get through to Israel. And so this is why he concludes his first round of accusations and warnings uh, with some vivid imagery of what the coming destruction will be like. Let's look at it together. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land. Pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. The very strongholds, the first thing we can note is that this punishment that's coming is retributive and it corresponds to the sins. An enemy will overrun your land and pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. The very strongholds that you used for violence and robbery Will be pulled down and plundered. We don't have time to dig in and explore what it might, what how they might have felt with the language of pulling down their strongholds. Because as that wall starts getting pulled down, the enemy starts flooding in over that pulled-down wall. That means you've lost and they are terrifying people that that cross that wall. Brutal soldiers who will slay your children, rape your women, and do unheard of things to you before perhaps setting the city on fire. Terrifying is how you should feel. They should feel. Verse 12, this is what the Lord says, as a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. The idea is not to dream about being the ear. It's about getting terrified about how helpless a sheep is in the hands of a lion. It's a vivid image. As the shepherd comes back to get the sheep that's been mauled by the lion and he finds a scrap of an ear. The punishment will be comprehensive. Don't think about escape. Verse 13, moving, moving on. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. So the thing about the horns of the altar that the horns of the altar were a place of refuge. That's the idea. They signified strength. And so the idea of cutting off the horns was about cutting off the place of refuge. The point is that there will be nowhere to run. The punishment will be inescapable. That's what Amos says. So I didn't open of up. There it is in the Bible. And so, moving through to us, how has this got any relevance for our lives? Well, I'm going to say that the pattern continues. And it continues, notably, for people with unwarranted assurance. That's what I was talking about at the beginning as I introduced the talk. Okay? And note here, carefully, Listen carefully. This is not for the tender conscience. That's not what the word, that's not what Amos's message that's not what it's for. There's a risk, I feel, in preaching this text because there are at least two different types of hearers, potentially, in the room. There's a the first group of those who have a sensitive conscience, who are walking humbly before the Lord in repentance and faith. Putting to death the known sins in their lives and seeking to follow after Jesus, to trust in Him, to love His neighbour, to do what is good and right. And there is a sense in which we should be able to look at our lives and gather assurance from that. That is not Amos's target. Amos's target is for those who are dull to the words of the prophet. As I've already said a couple of times, Amos is trying to get through to that group. He's not trying to wallop the faithful remnant. He's trying to shake up unwarranted assurance and therefore save those who are in genuine danger. And that is the person who has a claim to trust in Jesus, a claim to be a Christian, but no evidence of a changed life or of the fruit of the Spirit expressed in love, justice, and integrity. I think that the pattern continues that people with unwarranted assurance should also tremble. Now, just under this point here, I'll also say that we rightly emphasize the finished work of Jesus' death on behalf of sinners whereby he takes the punishment for our sins and freely gives to us the gift of righteousness, of sonship with God, and of eternal life. But just to be a bit sharper, in our effort, I think, to make this clear, there's another complementary note in the New Testament that we can turn down so low that it ceases to give any sound at all and that is the necessity of changed lives i'll just give a couple of examples in the new testament to show that i'm not making this up james chapter 1 verse 22 says do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves do what it says or more famously faith without deeds is dead that is It's dead faith, not living faith. That's the contrast. Because living faith is productive. It's alive. It produces fruit in the lives of those that exist within. So it's not about faith plus deeds. It's about true and lively faith. That's James' issue. And that's Jesus' point in Matthew 7, verse 15 to 27. I won't read the whole lot, but he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves. Listen, by their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Nope. Or figs from thistles? Nope. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then further down, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven.
1: Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did
0: we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles?
1: Then I will tell them
0: plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not saying I never knew you in the sense of I never. He's not strictly saying I never had an intimate relationship. That's the case, but what he's picking up on is that you're evildoers. There is evidence that you didn't truly know me because your life never changed. It's a major theme in John's first letter. To paraphrase large portions of that letter, John says in effect, you can spot those who love God by the way they love the family of God. Those who don't love the family of God don't know God. All the New Testament authors agree that it is possible to think yourself a believer and think yourself safe and yet be deceived about your relationship with God. And one key place to look for evidence is your love for others. And the word here for us is this, that we need to practice some self-examination and see if our confidence is warranted. Secondly, I think the pattern continues with the sense of urgency. <clears throat> Jesus tells a parable about a rich man who spends all his days storing up wealth for himself, but yet is not generous towards God. And Jesus has two key phrases at the end of that parable. The first is the rich man's internal dialogue. This is what he says. He says, <coughs> The rich men, I'll say to myself, soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And the second key phrase is God's reply to him. But God said to him, You fool, this very hour, this very night, rather, your life will be demanded from you. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The point I want to draw out here is the suddenness of these words. You fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. You have forgotten how fragile your life is, my friend. It's about urgency, people. You do not know when your life will be required of you. We are a breath. We are like a mist that appears and disappears. We live our lives dependent on the mercies of God and do not presume another day to decide if you will repent and turn to live for Jesus. Now... Is the time urgency the pattern continues? And finally, I think the pattern continues with the extent of punishment. Punishment is inescapable and unbearable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, it says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says. And what happens when you don't inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus is clear. He says, in Matthew, he says this six times. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness or variations on that but this is what he says six times there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth he's talking about hell and his point is and the point tonight is if you are living with unwarranted assurance then you need to wake up Hell will be two things. It will be inescapable and it will be unbearable. It will be inescapable because there is nowhere you can go to get away from God. And it will be unbearable because you will not be able to bear it. You need to get out of your head the idea that it might not be that bad. Hell will be unbearable. That's the end. So where do we go now? Quite simply, it's a call to repentance if that's what's needed. That's what Amos is trying to do in chapter 3. He's trying to get through to people with an unwarranted assurance. We claim confidence with God, but in reality there is no love for neighbor, there is injustice and they are propping up their own lives at the expense of others. Father in heaven, it's quite difficult to feel the urgency of our lives at times, but others we feel it acutely. We are breath, we stand before you as a mist. Please I pray if each one of us a sober and true assessment of ourselves to know if we are truly trusting in Christ if we have repented and are following him and that we would know that by the fruit of your spirit at work in our hearts and lives if we need to be woken up or anybody listening to this needs to be woken up Pray that in your grace and your mercy you would do that work. For your glory, have mercy on us and save us, we pray. In Jesus' name.